Anyways, our sister Lauren, if I got it right, we're going to be hitting on a passage this morning in regards to Judah and Tamar. I'm hoping to get that far with you guys. But it's just through walking through the book of Genesis that she came to faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think, why do we spend time in the Old Testament? What is the Old Testament there for? Guys, it's all been written for our learning. There is so much that we've been gleaning as we've been studying through the book of Genesis. This is super practical stuff for us. So before we jump into chapter 35 together this morning, I want to share, I love revivals. Any of you guys ever church, like studied church history, studied some of the revivals throughout history? I love reading about what God does. It's neat. I pray often for revival here. Do you guys know that we've had multiple revivals here in the West in the United States over the years? But they always take place on the coasts, down south, Bible Belt. Do you guys know what part of the country we've never seen a revival? Would that not be cool if God just decided to do a great thing in our day and just began to move in a radical way right here in our own backyard? I think that'd be cool. Some people say that's not going to happen. We're living in the last days. It's over. Don't put my God in a box. Okay, he is long-suffering for a purpose. He's mighty to save for a purpose. If he decides to pour out his spirit, he's going to do it. And let me tell you this, guys. It's not all about us here in America. You guys know America's not even in the Bible? Do you guys know that there actually is revivals going on today? Open our eyes. God is on the move today. Revival's happening all over the world. Some of us are tripping about what's taking place in Afghanistan you guys know Afghanistan was the second fastest growing church in the world? Imams were coming to faith. They were opening up mosques to have Christians come and worship Jesus Christ. And it's like, bummer. Look at what happened. That all just shut down. No, <laughs> the church is not buildings. It's not a location. It's our brothers and sisters who are living in Afghanistan. And where are they now? Well, God just took a bunch of his kids and brought them all over the world, spread them out to be light. It's kind of exciting. So I want to share with you guys about the Welsh revival real quick. Back in the early 1900s, uh, the Lord swept across the country. Okay, People were getting saved like crazy. Lives were being changed. Bars were being closed. I don't know if Kakana has more bars per person than any other city probably in the united states but if it is i would not be surprised you guys know what i'm like every corner is like a bar you know it's crazy anyways back then these bars were closing up people were confessing their sins churches um (laughs) they were being packed a great spiritual awakening transformed the entire country and during this time there were two children uh, they were overheard, ex, you know, just explaining their notions of what was occurring. And one kid asked his buddy, do you know what has happened in our town? The other child replied, no, uh, I don't, except Sunday comes every single day of the week now. The first kid asked again, don't you know? And he said, no, I don't. And finally the boy explained, hey, Jesus Christ has come to live in our town. Wouldn't it be cool if Jesus just crashed in to this community? How cool. What would change? Guys, that's a wonderful explanation when it comes to spiritual revival. A personal revival takes place when God gives us a new awareness of Jesus. 
And have you guys experienced that before? Maybe you've been in the Lord for a while and there's a new revelation. Maybe a new season in life. Change is happening. Change can be hard. Well, what happens? We lean into him a little more and whoo, new realities of who our Savior is and what that means for us in our lives and our relationship to him. So revival comes whenever we sense the presence of Jesus in a very new and powerful way. It's one thing I love about church. I love when the Spirit of God stirs us up, okay, and he moves. Um, We're going to see this morning as we get back into Genesis here in chapter 35, Jacob experiences a revival. And boy, did this guy need one, okay. Um, I want you guys to understand in Jacob's life, it was really far from an an exemplary uh, example of faith. God worked... um, with a you know this vacillating Jacob, you guys, one moment he's up and then he's down in his faith. He's hot, he's cold, on again, off again. So after swindling his brother of his birthright, Jacob flees to Haran. He finds uh, to find a wife and to escape his brother Esau. And on the way, he has this dream of this ladder that extended up to heaven. Jacob encounters God. And he receives the promise that God had made to his dad, Isaac, and to his grandpa, Abraham. And he names the place Bethel, okay, the house of God. Now, Jacob spends the next 20 years building a harem and growing his herds. He marries two women. You guys remember Leah and Rachel? And gets the bonus of two concubines. And these four women, Jacob sears 12 sons and a daughter, Finally, he returns to the land, and he encounters God again near uh, a tributary of, you know, that, fe- that feeds into the Jordan River, and he wrestles with God's messenger there, okay, um, thinking he's Esau, but then he finally, re- you know, realizes, hey, this heavenly messenger, it's actually God. I'm actually wrestling against God, but he refuses uh, to let him go until he receives a blessing from him, So the next day, Jacob is reunited with Esau, but rather than enter the land that God promised him, Jacob squats on the east bank of the river there. Um, it was a lack of faith, and Jacob spends some time in this place call, that he calls uh, Sukkoth until he finally enters into the promised land. But again, Jacob settles in a questionable area okay he pitches his tents near a canaanite stronghold of shechem shechem pagan very worldly okay city there now shechem um it's at shechem jacob's life uh really finally falls apart his daughter dinah begins to hang out with the locals she gets raped jacob does nothing so his sons take the matter into their own hands to avenge their sister by slaughtering all the men of Shechem. Now, imagine Jacob's situation here, okay? This is a little bit of background. We haven't been in Genesis for a few weeks, so a little bit of a recap here. You guys kind of see what Jacob's facing, the situation he is in right now. His heart's aching for his daughter. He's ashamed, okay, of the impulsion of, in the you know, violence of his sons. Uh, his reputation has been ruined. He is... His fears here are surrounding nations are out uh, to get him. So the end of chapter 34, Jacob and his family 
they're really spiritually adrift at this point. Jacob is in need of a spiritual revival, and that's when God comes to the rescue. Maybe this morning you personally are in need of a spiritual revival. God is here, guys, right here. Let's look at chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So God brings Jacob back to where he first encountered God. So the sinful city here of Shechem had gotten Jacob's eyes off of the Lord. And as a result, there was confusion. There was carnage uh, for him and his entire family. It's time for a new encounter with God. And Jacob is ordered to make an altar. Did you guys catch that? Make an altar. God wants to re-alter Jacob. So Jacob needs to leave the world behind. And I think that's what God's asking us, right? You can have all this world. (laughs) Give me Jesus, right? Leave the world behind. Seek fellowship with the Lord. That's what it's about, guys. So when we learn this also is the cure for our ailments. It's the answer to our problems. If the world has you confused and beaten down, return to the house of God. Rededicate yourself to him. And at the altar, let God re-alter your life. That's why I like times like this. That's why I like retreats. That's why I look forward to those quiet times with the Lord. We need to allow him to re-alter. We need to rethink and allow his word to renew our minds. That fellowship with him is so important for us. So I want you guys to notice as we get to verse 2 here, some preparations that need to occur before God, you know, before we come to God's altar. It says, And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away your foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar to there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in a way which I have gone. So before they go to meet the Lord, we need to do these three steps. Did you guys catch them? Put away the idols, purify yourself, and change your garments. Those three things are laid out. And these are the same prerequisites for you and I when we meet with God. First of all, we need to put away our idols. You guys understand that? Forsaking all others. If we're going to come to Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, okay, we can't have others. He alone is Savior. So we need to put them away, okay? Jesus doesn't want us toting other gods with us <laughs> when we come to him, right? He, he, he's to govern us. He is it. He is our Lord. So whatever it is you love more than God, put it away. And then to purify yourself, wash in the blood of Jesus. Ask for a fresh cleansing. Do you guys know that God desires purity in his church? Okay? That's what he desires. That's what we want to be for him, a pure, spotless bride, right? And then to change our garments. So in other words, it's to adopt new perspective. Learn to see yourself in Christ, right? Be clothed with Christ. Who am I in 
Christ. That is our identity, and that is the most important identity for any human being. So you are a child of God, so we shed our worldly attitudes. And that's what God, you know, Jacob's family does, because we look at verse 4, it says, So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods, which were in their hands, and their earrings, and uh, which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. I want you guys to notice what Jake does here, okay? This, this provoked me, okay? The, the worldliness, the sin, he buries it under a tree. Now, this is how you discard the baggage in your life. You go to the cross, guys. You bring it. Cast your cares, First Peter 5, 7, upon the Lord, for he cares for you. We cast all this worldly stuff, this junk, at the foot of the cross, Okay, let it be buried there, leave it there, never go back, okay? Jesus died for us. He took our sin upon himself, okay? So we give it there. And then it goes on to say, and they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jake, or here we have God protecting them. And so Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there, and he called the place El Bethel. So literally, God of the house of God, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Um, I like Jacob's perception here. Jacob could have gotten sentimental about the location where he met with God. And this is something that happens to many believers. They grow attached to a specific church or building, okay? They act as if, you know, it's a spiritual hot spot, you know? Here's the Wi-Fi connection to God, you know? Um, but Jacob doesn't fall into that. He doesn't have that attitude towards Bethel. It was where he met God and where he met God again, but after the second encounter, Jacob, you know, he renames the place, not Bethel, but El Bethel, or the God of the house of God. So, ja so Jacob here is really making a statement that I want us to get. You see, his faith is not dependent on a locale, but it's on God who meets him, okay? Meets him. And that's the thing. We as believers, where is God? Is he here this morning at this location, 112 Main Ave in Kakana, Wisconsin? No, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's at home with you when you're on your knees in your prayer closet. He's with you when you're off to work in the car, when you arrive at work. He is with you in the hard things of the day and in the good things of the day. He is with you. Got to chat with a sister who does a neat ministry nonprofit here in Kakan, and we're going to have her come and share with us uh, sometime this fall. Um, but we were talking about times that God has spoken to us, and she was sharing, I think it was 27 years ago, she was in the shower and God spoke. Does God ever speak to you when you're in the shower? God has spoken to me when I'm in the shower. Sometimes I think we just need to disconnect. He's always with us. But there's so much noise going on all the time. When are we disconnecting? 
maybe it's at three in the morning when you wake up and you're like, why am I up? I got like three more hours of sleep. This ain't good. Maybe God wants to speak to you. Maybe he needs you in this place where you're disconnected to realize that he is right there with you. So I like Jacob's perspective here. Um, Did we read verse 8? No, we did not. Verse 8. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the Terabith tree. So the name was called Elan Bakoth. The tree of weeping is what it means. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padamaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. So God changes him from Jacob, the heel catcher, okay, a name that really implies, you know, you dirty, sneaky, conniving, you know, heel catcher you, uh, to Israel. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and Israel simply means governed by God. So the change in his name really pointed to a change in nature. So between his two trips to Bethel, Jacob had gone from a self-sufficient man who relied on his schemes, his own fleshly, you know, wisdom and power, to a man who knew God and trusted in his promises. Which takes us to verse 11, And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. So God passes on this covenant that he made earlier to Abraham and then to Isaac, and now it's given to Jacob, to Israel. Okay, Verse 12, the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and your descendants. After you, I give this land. So the Palestinians, the Arabs... They need to read this verse, okay? The covenant God made to Abraham also belongs to Israel and his sons. You guys know how much fighting's gone on over that little piece of land there in the Middle East? Little bitty Israel. All these wars, all these surrounding countries, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away, you have people that are super worried about what's going on in this little chunk of land. It's a spiritual thing, guys. That's why it's such a big deal. And you know what? Israel's there today. Okay? I got to go last year, two years ago. Last year. Last February. Okay? Got to be there. Jewish people everywhere. Also, a lot of Arabs everywhere. (laughs) But Israel is a nation. God is bringing his people home from all over the world. We'll talk more about that next week. But we see it right here in Scripture. It's all over. God promised it. It's an everlasting covenant. He's not done with Israel. Okay? Yet they were going to disperse just like we were told in the prophecies of the Bible. Jesus himself told us this was going to happen. But he also said that in the last days he would regather Israel into the land. That happened in 1948, guys, in our lifetime. It's kind of exciting to see these things coming together. Anyways. Um, yeah. Then God went up. From him to the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So here we have Jacob. 
he gathered a pile of rocks to serve as a memorial. A spiritual landmark was made here by Jacob. And I believe we need all kinds of these milestones to remind us, you know, how far God has brought us. You know, I've talked to a lot of, you know, believers that really kind of struggle with their assurance of faith, you know. And it's one of those things, it's nice to have that landmark. Hey, that's when I came to Christ Jesus. That's when I finally surrendered all and gave my life to him, you know. Lauren, you were gone, but I was talking about you before and stuff. We're going to get to this passage of scripture where you were sitting in a church just hearing this preached, and this is when you, if I got the story right, put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know. Our sister's able to look back. Yeah, it was just a study in Genesis talking about Judah and Tamar. That was the time. That was the place that I personally put my faith in Jesus Christ. And it's good to have that. And some of you guys haven't done that yet. You may have been in church your entire life. You may be going through, you know, the routine of being a Christian, but you're not really a Christian. You're not really a child of God. There needs to become come a place, a time, where you finally surrender and say, I'm all in. It's you. I believe completely. You alone, Jesus, are my Savior. I believe I'm yours. So that's what we see Jacob do here. Um, Yeah. It marks his transformation at Bethel. And it says here, Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke to him, Bethel. Verse 16, then he journeyed from Bethel. When there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth and she had a hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing for she died that she called his name Benoni or the son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And that speaks of a position of honor. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Guys, it's interesting, okay, that 2,000 years uh, after Benjamin was born, another child was born in Bethlehem. Jesus began as, as a son of sorrow. Okay, he agonized on the cross. And later, his father changed his name to the son of my right hand. When Jesus rose from the dead, he returned to heaven, and he now sits where? At the right hand of the father. And then Israel journeyed, and he pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went to lay with Billa, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now, Billa was Rachel's maid. Uh, Reuben was Jacob's firstborn son. So there's, this was the sin of incest, okay? And it cost Reuben dearly. Because of this sin, Reuben would later forfeit the rights of being the firstborn. We know that's a big thing for the Jewish people. 
And Reuben could have been, you know, father of the Messiah, but instead, you know, uh, it's just a name, you know, um, of a sandwich after him. I mean, that's all Reuben got, right? <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> sorry, guys. Uh, now, <laughs> the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. And the sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. And the sons of Billah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. So here's the family's roll call. Jacob's boys will become the 12 tribes of Israel. It's amazing how the future uh, of a nation of Israel really parallels with the life of the man with the same name. I want you guys to notice some similarities with me. You know, while away, they both yearn to return home, both develop as crafty, you know, businessmen, uh, both preserved and prospered by providence of God, both became wanderers, and finally, in God's time, he returns both to the promised land. And then we're told in verse 27, then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kirith Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So evidently, uh, they did not only bury their dad, but they also buried the hatchet. You see, for the family's sake, uh, the two brothers who never got along worked together to make these arrangements. Now chapter 36, now the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom, Later in the Old Testament, guys, we're going to read a whole lot about the Edomites. Have you heard about them before? Okay. Well, they come from Esau. It's his descendants. So Esau took his wives and the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, uh, Halabama, uh, the daughter of Anna, and the daughter of uh, Zibian, the Hivite, and of Basmath, uh, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of of Nabajoth. So Esau here has three wives, and all three, they were pagan princesses, okay? And sadly, he married, you know, idolatrous women. We're told then in verse 4, now Adah bore Aliphaz to Esau, and Basmath bore Reuel, and Alabamath bore Jeush, and Jolam uh, Korah. And these were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and his animals, and all his goods, which were gained to him in the land of Canaan. And he went to the country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. So the Edomites, they settled south of where the Dead Sea is in Israel. In later years, the Edomites became Israel's neighbors. We're told here, for their possessions, they were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. In later years, the capital of Edom 
became the rock city of Petra. Okay? I believe that Petra is going to be the place we read in Revelation during the seven years of tribulation where the 144,000 Jews are preserved, are protected by God. I think they're probably going to land in the rock city of Petra because they say that this city can hold about 150,000 people. There's one entrance into it. Great place to hold 144,000 Jews, I think. Anyways, um, yeah. Also, guys, uh, the facet of Petra was used in the movie The Last Crusade, okay? It's where um, Indiana Jones found the grail. Um, other notes of interest, King Herod was an Edomite. Do you guys know that the book of Obadiah, okay, the prophecy that was written in that book is a warning to the nation of Edom of the coming judgment. And then in verse 12, the name Amalek appears perhaps the father of the Amalekites. And also I want to notice a point of interest because you guys can look at verse 4, 10, and 12. It mentions the name Eliphaz. You guys familiar with Eliphaz in the Bible? In verse 33, you'll hear, or you'll find the name here, uh, Joab, perhaps Job for short. Both these characters appear in the book of Job, which is one of the reasons why a lot of scholars think Job was written before the book of Genesis, accounting, and that's where they get that from. Um, so this occurred, probably Job lived probably during the time of the patriarchs, uh, before Moses ever wrote Genesis. So as for a reminder of Esau's genealogy here, guys, I'm going to let you guys read the rest of this on yourself later today. So go back, read this. Chapter 37 begins with fascinating story of Joseph. And I'm pretty stoked to get into his life with you guys. More than 25% of Genesis is preoccupied with Joseph. So God gives a lot of time to this guy's life, and for good reason. There's more biblical ink that goes into the life of Joseph almost than anyone else in the Bible, except, of course, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and King David. James Montgomery Boyce penned these words about Joseph. He said, He was loved and hated, favored and abused, tempted and trusted, or trusted, exalted and abased, yet at no point in his 110 years of life of Joseph, did he ever seem to get his eyes off God or cease to trust him? Adversity did not harden his character. Prosperity did not ruin him. He was the same in private as in public. He was truly a great man. And I would agree with him. Joseph is a great example for you and I, guys. So over the next several studies, we're going to learn much about faith from Joseph. Chapter 37 begins, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. And this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with his sons of Billa, so that would have been Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Gad and Asher, and his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father, so in other words, he snitched, okay? What happens when you snitch on your sibs, <laughs> right? While Joseph was honest with his dad about what happened, he told him what he needed to know, um, 
he incriminated his brothers, and you can bet <coughs> this didn't make his brothers fond of Joseph here, right? So they get infuriated, and we're told in verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Uh, Israel here um, really bears the blame of how his brothers treated Joseph. He helped create this intense uh, sibling rivalry going on, which brings us to a great point uh, for us parents. We can't play favorites, okay? Uh, if you got multiple kids, you're going to be tempted to. It's a very natural thing uh, to do because you might have more in common with one of your kids than you do another one. Um, in circumstances, you know, with Joseph, okay, a special birth. So like Joseph, um, you know, the son of your old age, but let me warn you guys, you favor one child and you slight another, you're going to create all kinds of dissension and conflict within the home, okay? Uh, don't do it. And if ever there was a dad who should have known the danger, it, it was Jacob, right? He, he should have known this. Remember his dad, Isaac, had always favored Esau, the hunter, the guy who got him some meat, <laughs> right? Uh, Jacob knew that. So he knew the mistake of doing this, of being resented. And the next verse, you know, throws gas on the fire. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. Ooh, my special son, I'm going to get you something a little special, right? Uh, we need to be careful of that. I had to repent with my kids last year sat them all down, you know, and I'd, I'd joke with each one of them in private, never in front of another one, you know, you're my favorite, right? I love you the most, you know, and God really convicted me, that's not good, that's not right, so I had to sit with all three of them, and I repented, you know, can't play favorites, I love each and every one of you, each and every one of you God has made special, and are a gift to me, and I explain the dangers of it so they have an understanding of why that's wrong. So I would encourage you guys, parents, don't do it. Um, so let's move on. Israel here um, had bought all his sons. If he had bought all his sons, you know, coats of many colors, there would have been no problem, but just Joseph got this coat, uh, and he's the only one that had this jacket. And boy, did it make his brothers even more jealous because look at verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So a father's favoritism and a silly coat combined with, you know, combined, you know, really tear this family apart. In this transition phrase, did you guys catch it? The tunic of many colors um, or the translation here. It actually could be translated a coat with long sleeves, okay? Um, so this was a landowner's attire. Common workers, they wore the short sleeves so they could be given to work easily, you know? Long sleeves, hey, you're white collar. You just go around telling people what to do, right? Uh, so that's the difference. But anyways, there's this bitterness brewing within this family, boiling. It's ready to explode here. And Joseph doesn't help the matter, Okay? Uh, in verse 2, he tattles, right? Now, in verse 5, he tells his brothers about a dream he has. Check it out. We're told, now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers. 
and they hated him even more. So Joseph never learned the one key to a happily family is to really leave out, you know, some things just need to be unsaid. We don't have to talk about everything, okay? So Joseph had spilled the beans here, verse 6. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. And there we were, binding sheaves in the field. And then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves, they stood all around and they bowed down to my sheaves. So in other words, your Wheaties are going to bow to my Wheaties, (laughs) is what he's saying. And his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. The dream was true, guys. We're going to see that play out. But the brothers didn't want to admit that they would one day have to submit uh, to their bratty little brother, uh, to daddy's little pet, okay? So when you read how his brothers reacted, either Joseph was guilty of, you know, a little spiritual pride here, or he was just totally oblivious, okay, to what was happening. Uh, it may be that Joseph didn't sin, but at best he needed a lesson, you know, on a little bit of tack and diplomacy, right? Uh, Joseph's second dream then had the same impact. In fact, it even angers his dad, Jacob. Look at verse 9. Then the dream, uh, he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down to me. So in other words, his dad, his mom, and each of his loving brothers, the whole family will bow down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, and his father kept the matter in mind. And it's this jealousy, guys, that really sets up the movement for the entirety of Joseph's story. So for 14 chapters, we're going to embark on a journey with Joseph. We'll follow him from a pit to Potiphar's, to prison, and then finally to a palace. And Joseph's life, guys, really is a showcase for another P, okay? And that's providence. You guys know that God is sovereign over all situations. All. So he moves behind the scenes to accomplish his plans. So Joseph really illustrates a truth that our disappointments are God's appointments. We see in verse 12, then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. And he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out to the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem, which brings up two more P's in the story of Joseph. Picture and prophecy. Joseph is a picture and a prophecy of Jesus. 
You see, the Old Testament often speaks of New Testament realities through types or analogies. Um, it's been said typology is a species of prophecy, and you guys have heard the old saying, what's concealed in the old is revealed in the new, and what's revealed in the new is concealed in the old, and it's true, guys. The Old Testament is wonderful, okay? Really, it does open up our understanding of the new. You see, Joseph is an excellent example, okay? Uh, Joseph is an amazing type of Jesus, Okay, we read of Hebron here, which means communion. And that's exactly what Joseph was enjoying, communion with his father, Jacob, until he's sent to Shechem. So throughout the Bible, guys, Shechem is associated with sin and sorrow. Okay? So this applies to Jesus. The gospel story begins with the father and the son in heaven, communion together with each other on broken fellowship until the son is sent into the world of sin and sorrow okay like joseph jesus came to earth to check on his brothers his jewish the jewish people and the jews conspired to kill him exactly what happens to joseph when he arrives in shechem well the parallels throughout are really uncanny guys it's as if God had planned this years in advance, okay? Look at verse 15. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in a field, and a man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they're feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, and the herd, uh, for I have heard them say, Let's go down to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. So Joseph is about to step into a pile of trouble here. Look at verse 19. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into a pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So Reuben's intention here. He wanted to bring little Joe back to his dad, okay? But that's not how the story plays out. Verse 23, so it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic and the tunic of many colors that was on him and they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty and there was no water in it and they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked and there was a company of Ishlamites coming from Gilead in their cam on their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, and they on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So it happened to be this caravan headed for Egypt. So Judas said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? I want you guys to notice Judah, he only brings this up because of money. Okay, hey, how can we make a little money off our brother, right? Uh, he wants to betray Joseph for money, and it reminds me of another later Judah, or as we know, 
Judas, right? Apparently, Reuben here was away, so Judah takes charge. Come, and let us sell him to the Ishlamites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers listen. And the Midianite uh, traders passed by, and the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishlamites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. So Jesus was sold for 30 shekels of silver by a man named Judas. Look at verse 29. Reuben shows back up here. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed, Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So how could he ever return to, the, you know, to face his father with the news that they had ditched uh, his favored son? So they had to concoct, concoct a plan here. So they took Joseph's tunic. They killed a kid of the goats and dipped the tunic in blood. Good thing they didn't have DNA tests back then, right? <laughs> and then it says, Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether uh, it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. The wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for many days. I want you guys to note the irony here that we find. Call it poetic justice. But Jacob gets tricked by the same means in which he tricked his father Isaac. Think about that. I also want us to remember Jacob killed a goat and attached the wool on his arms to mimic Esau. Now his sons kill a goat to dip Joseph's coat in blood. So Jacob deceived and is deceived by a goat. So you could say Jacob's sons got his goat the same way he treated his own father, right? So the chickens come home to roast. A man's sin comes back to bite him. Verse 35 says, And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down to the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. For the next 20 years, this old man, Jacob, would grieve over the loss of his son, Joseph. Okay, we all grieve differently. 20 years, guys. So verse 36 shifts location to the slave market in Egypt. Now the Mennonites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. So this is the second movement in the story of Joseph. He goes from the pit to Potiphar, okay? But in between is a bizarre story that's inserted here in chapter 38, okay? 38 recounts a, a sordid story of highlights of Jacob's son Judah um, and in disregard to the custom that no longer is applicable to us, the law of the Leverite, okay? Um, which I'll explain real quickly the custom um, and then we'll read the chapter. The Hebrew word levar, okay, uh, is a term for brother-in-law. In ancient times, if a man died without an heir, it was the responsibility of that man's brother then to marry the widow and to raise up an heir to take over his brother's household. So the law of the Liverites was later um, 
codified by Moses in Deuteronomy 25, if you guys want to read that and check it out. But with that background, let's plunge in quickly. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers to visit a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So here's the beginning of Judah's trouble, okay? He marries a Canaanite, an unbeliever. And when we learn this, you know, it's, or, it's a mistake. So marry an unbeliever, uh, and you will get, you know, the devil as a father-in-law, okay? Uh, Judah's sin, right? He set himself up for a host of problems by marrying this unbeliever. Um, so if you're single here, guys, don't repeat the same mistake, okay? Don't be unequally yoked. You believe in Jesus, you marry someone who believes in Jesus. Um, check out verse 3. So she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. So hey, Judah erred when he married an unbeliever, right? <laughs> so <laughs> she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan, and she conceived yet again and bore a son and named his name Shelah. And he was uh, Shezib when she bore him. Then Judah took the wife of Ur, his firstborn, and uh, her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. So we don't know how Ur erred, um, <laughs> but apparently, guys, it was a serious error, okay? Um, sorry. Verse 8, and Judah said to Onan, now you guys know how I read the Bible. <laughs> Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. And Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. So this was a cruel and very selfish deed here. Onan uses Tamar sexually then dumps his seed on the ground from searing a son um, who would, you know, would not be considered his son, uh, just a nephew. And then we're told, verse 10, the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. So one reason the story appears here in the Bible is because of the importance of the lineage of Judah. Okay, and I want to I tie this in here. Uh, we'll see later Jacob's thirdborn uh, becomes the heir of the family birthright. In fact, Messiah is born through the lineage of Judah, right? Failing to cooperate with Judah's ancestral responsibilities was a very serious crime. We're told in verse 11 that Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown for he said, lest he also die as his brothers die, or did. So I want you guys to notice that Judah implies that Tamar uh, may have you know, been a good reason his sons had kicked the bucket, uh, but it was an insult that made Tamar really angry Okay, here. Um, Judah should have you know, never married the Canaanite, um, and I'm sure later years the rabbis probably use this to hammer home uh, with future Hebrews, that fact. Um, and Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house, verse 12. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted. And he went up to the sheep shears in 
Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adolamite. So notice again, hanging out with the wrong people, okay? Uh, hey, Hira is another idolatrous, you know, idolatrous uh, Canaanite. Hey, I pray, you know, all of you young people catch this, especially uh, bad company never produces good morals. Pick your friends wisely. And it was told to Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in the open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she was, or, or saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. So Tamar here feels double-crossed. Okay, she believes it's time uh, to get what's coming to her. She wants her heir. She concocts a scheme to get what she wants. We're told in verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, okay? And that was the plan because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please, let me come into you. For, it did not, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So this really shows the moral condition of Judah, right? Uh, his wife dies, and, you know, before her body gets cold, he's already out soliciting a prostitute, you know. Uh, so she said from behind her veil, what will you give me that you may come into me? So in other words, you know, I want some collateral because I, I don't know who you are, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I want your credit card number <laughs> or something. Um, and he said, hey, I will send you a young goat from my flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? So she firsthand knows that Judah doesn't keep his promises. Then he said, what pledge shall I give to you? So she said, your signet or and cord in your staff that is in your hand. So these are very important items, okay? It's like giving your credit card number with your signature. It's like, hey, you know, here, here you go. Um, then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him and she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on garments of her widowhood. Now verse 20 says, Judas sent the young goat by the hand of his friend the Dolomites to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. So he wanted to retrieve the signet and the staff but the woman just disappeared. And then we're told in verse 21, then he asked the men of the place, saying, where is the harlot who openly is on the roadside? And they said, there's no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of the place there said, no harlot is in the place. And then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. And I sent this young goat and you have not found her. And he assumed, guys, just like that, you know, he could just, you know, dismiss the whole responsibility, you know, of this whole affair. So, guys, trust me, when you fall into sexual sin, it's never so easy. There are always consequences. And it comes to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Therefore, she's with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Judah was outraged. He was undone 
at what his daughter-in-law had did. He was livid here. You know, this wicked girl, she has shamed me. She has shamed our family. She needs to die. So, so when she was brought out, we're told, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. Guess what she had handed over, guys, right? And she said, please determine who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff, okay? It would have been something to have seen the look on Judah's face, right? Like, whoa, you know, busted, because he saw his signet, his cord, his staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. But as the old adage declares, your sins will find you out, Okay. So it may take a few months or even a few years, but they'll get to you. Verse 27, now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in the womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand. And the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Then it happened, he drew back his hand and that the brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name is called Perez, or breakthrough. Afterward, his brother came out and had the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was Zerah, which means the rising light. Now, we're going to fast forward 1,800 years okay, from <clears throat> to the birth of Jesus study his genealogy you guys know that in matthew chapter one you'll find an amazing entry verse three judah begot perez and zerah by tamar wow isn't that pretty cool so the prostitution of judah the you know vindictiveness of tamar these illegitimate twins perez and zerah the whole sordid story here ends becoming a branch of the family tree of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is a huge testimony to God's grace. Okay? God can take even our blunders and our failures and turn them for good. So, Father, we are so grateful for your amazing grace. We thank you for the grace that has found us, the blessing of knowing you, God, to know that you are in control, that you are sovereign, Lord, that you do work all things out for the good to those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Thank you for uh, just teaching us much this morning. Lord, as we learn truth, <laughs> uh, we want to live it out. God, we want to love well, love you, to love others, Lord, to walk in truth. So I just pray that your grace be upon us all. Father, help us walk closely with you. I'm asking your name. Amen. Amen. Good stuff. Thanks for hanging in. I know we did a lot of chapters this morning, but I'm hoping you catch and they kind of flow together, okay? In getting into the life of Joseph, if you guys want to read ahead, a lot of good stuff in the weeks to come. Cool, cool? God bless you guys. Love you. We'll see you next week.